This is DNA And, the podcast bringing you the latest science and innovation in DNA and our health. As always, we're focusing on DNA and human health, with the exception that today we will not be chatting about human DNA only. We're going to look at how studying the DNA of bacteria and other bugs can help us to better understand our own health. So we're very excited about this bonus episode on DNA and bugs because it was recently World Microbiome Day and we are delighted to collaborate with the Imperial Microbiome Network to find out a bit more about their research. So as always, we're here to explain what role DNA plays. Yes, this time we're not only chatting about human DNA, but also microbial DNA. We will look at how microbes like fungi and bacteria can play a role in human health. They're present in your gut, in your lungs, on your skin, in your mouth, literally everywhere. So we call this collection of microbes our body's microbiota. And contrary to some people's beliefs, we'll see that not all microbes are bad for you. Some are extremely beneficial and help us by doing things that our human body cannot. Yep, and all these microbes have unique genomes, which is the technical word for their DNA, effectively their unique instruction manuals. The collection of all these instruction manuals are what we call a microbiome. We will discuss how we can read microbial DNA and use it as a microbe ID tag to identify and quantify which microbes are present in our bodies. But we should also mention that our own human DNA influences which microbes thrive on or within us, since our own DNA is the blueprint for their home, our bodies, and they have a preference for where they live, as I do and you do. It's also important to note that every human has their unique microbiome. And the microbiome is particularly interesting because it might change in composition throughout somebody's life. And it's made up of a community of different microbes. And some of these may become more prevalent or new ones may colonize the body. So it's constantly changing. And the most important thing is that particular microbes have been associated with human health conditions. And what does everything come back to? Their DNA. Right. So microbe DNA is just as important as human DNA for our health. And one of the things we want to talk about today is how the study of DNA has revolutionized the study of the microbiome as well. Yes, that's a really important point. So in the past, to see what microbes were present in a sample, you'd need to culture them. So effectively, grow enough of them so you can profile them and investigate them. Yeah, this approach was used for many years, but it suffers from some drawbacks. The main one is that if a microbial species is present in very low numbers, or if you cannot replicate their ideal culture conditions, so culture them outside the body, you could not see them properly. So in the end, you would infer that they were not there. But as DNA technologies become better, it's now possible to get a biological sample and read the DNA present. And of course, there's not just going to be human DNA, but microbe DNA. This means you don't need to culture microbes anymore and you can explore the diversity present. So this new genomics approach is known as metagenomics. Sounds cool, right? Yeah, it sounds really cool. And do not forget that DNA is the language that creates all life. This includes humans, mammals, birds, reptiles, fish, bacteria, fungi, and literally any other life form on planet Earth. We've also explained how DNA is a molecule and the chemistry of it is the same for all organisms. So if we're able to read human DNA, we're also able to read bacterial, fungal and viral DNA as well. 
Although the chemistry is very similar, actually the grammar can be quite different. That's an important point to make. The combination of the letters can differ a little bit. Yeah, and since we're discussing specifics, there might be some viruses that do not actually have DNA as instruction manuals, but RNA. Well, But let's not get into it. <laughs> yeah, we'll save that for a future episode. For this episode, we've got some very special guests from the Imperial Microbiome Network. So first we spoke to Professor Miriam Moffat about her research on the microbiome of the airway. And then we're going to have a chat about DNA and bugs with PhD students Theo and Leo. So stay tuned. Hi, Hannah and Angelos. It's a real pleasure to be given the opportunity to talk to you today. So I have a chair in respiratory genetics within the National Heart and Lung Institute here at Imperial. We became interested in the potential of there being a respiratory microbiome in both health and disease due to the findings from our studies identifying the genes underlying asthma and its associated traits. These studies highlighted the importance of the respiratory epithelium, the lining of the lungs, and that the allergic component often seen in asthma was likely to be a secondary effect rather than causative. Epidemiological studies that look at the distribution and occurrence of a disease had previously revealed strong regional differences in the incidence of asthma, with disease risk reduced in rural environments. So, for example, if you grew up on a Bavarian farm, you were protected from developing asthma or allergic disease. Now, when we first started our microbiome studies in 2007, medical teaching was that the healthy lungs were sterile. However, the study we went on to conduct was the first to discover that the healthy lungs do have a characteristic microbiome. And this is a finding that was subsequently replicated by many others. That is really interesting. So in our podcast, we talk a lot about human health and disease. Can you tell us any more about the lung microbiome in this context? So in our original study, we looked at both adults and children suffering from mild and moderate asthma. We saw that the types of bacteria seen were different to those in the healthy lung. The microbiome was disturbed, so-called dysbiosis. We saw increased numbers of known and potentially pathogenic bacteria, such as Haemophilus and Neisseria, and a notable reduction in the so-called healthy bacteria, the commensals. And we've also extended our studies to look at the fungi, another component of the microbiome, in diseases such as cystic fibrosis. Ah, yeah. So fungi are one of Angelos's favorite, right? Yeah, it's my favorite kingdom. Yeah. So are there any other cool or interesting research findings that you can tell us about? Gosh, there's so much going on in the respiratory microbiome field. One of our other interesting findings was from a study we did of a town called Bustleton in Western Australia. We observed that being a current smoker had a profound impact on the respiratory microbiome, with it notably being dominated by one particular group of bacteria known as Streptococcus. With many former smokers now moving to vaping, it's going to be interesting, but also important, to understand the impacts on the healthy respiratory microbiome. Another cool, interesting aspect is the potential development and use therapeutically of bioengineered bacteria. And by bioengineered bacteria, we mean bacteria that we have artificially changed their DNA. What else can you tell us about DNA in this field? So the DNA of the bacteria themselves, their whole genomes, is really important. The majority of studies of the microbiome in the respiratory field have been focused on one bacterial gene known as the 16S ribosomal RNA gene. So to do metagenomic studies, you have to go to a great depth of sequencing. And this is costly, but these studies are going to become increasingly important to do. And this is because our 16S studies can tell us that, for example, a streptococcus is present, 
but not if it is a benign one that will do us no harm or a potential pathogen such as eumoniae. We should clarify for our listeners who aren't familiar with the term that we use the technical term sequencing when we mean reading the DNA. For metagenomic studies to reassemble the fragments of DNA sequence generated, you also need, a little bit like assembling a jigsaw puzzle, a picture of what you're trying to assemble. You need relevant reference bacterial genomes. So we've been focusing our recent studies on doing extensive microbial culture of respiratory samples, so using lots of different mixtures of nutrients and conditions to grow up the bacteria. We've then taken these bacteria, extracted their DNA and sequenced it. So we now have a collection of relevant bacteria, including new novel isolates, from the lungs with a genome sequence for each of the bacteria. And this has allowed us to start gaining, just from the genome sequences, further insights into the different functions and capabilities of these respiratory bacteria. Yes, so we've said it multiple times, DNA is the instruction manual that creates the microbe. So having the technology to read it unlocks all sorts of information. Can I ask, what impacts the lung microbiome? I know you said smoking, but besides that. So that's another great question. And I mentioned smoking earlier on, but another important key impact is common seasonal respiratory viral infections that have been shown by us and others to result in alteration of the lung microbiome. And this can result in secondary bacterial infections and importantly, exacerbations. Now, worldwide, there are about 545 million people who have a chronic respiratory disease. And in the case of diseases such as asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, so-called COPD, half of the annual costs of healthcare and lost productivity is attributable to said exacerbations. It's also fascinating, therefore, to note that when measures to limit transmission of COVID during the pandemic were introduced, there was a dramatic reduction in the incidence of seasonal viral infections, but also a dramatic fall by 50% of acute exacerbations in those with pre-existing chronic respiratory diseases. So I feel the impact of viruses and increasing our understanding of viral bacterial host interactions is an important area of lung microbiome research and certainly one that we are focusing on. So that was Professor Miriam Moffat from the National Heart and Lung Institute at Imperial. And in the next part of the episode, we're going to be having a conversation with two PhD students from the Microbiome Network. And if you like the idea of this bioengineering bacteria, wait till you hear more from Theo. So today we're welcoming onto the podcast Leo and Theo, who are two PhD students from Imperial College London. And let's start by asking you guys about your work and how you came to be in Imperial's microbiome network. Hi there, I'm Theo. I'm a third year PhD student at the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. And currently I'm working on studying the wastewater microbiome for the purpose of ways to energy. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what the Imperial Microbiome Network is, which by the way, the Twitter handle is at Bugs Imperial, which I love. <laughs> can you tell us a bit about it? Well, in short, it is a place that brings people from different disciplines to work on microbiome. For example, I'm environmental engineer and Leo is a bioengineer. Bioinformatician. Same, you're in good company. That's me and Angelos as well. Theo, you're the minority here. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes, always, <laughs> always. <laughs> Yeah, and in terms of what we actually do in the network to achieve all of that is we organize events, we organize talks and workshops, and we try to bring industry 
and researchers at Imperial together. For many researchers, it can be hard to find industry collaborations, and so we want to make that a bit easier. Same thing for the industry. How do you know which scientists to approach? And there, a network like ours can really help, I think. They encourage interdisciplinary exchange, as well as knowledge exchange, idea exchange. You know, sometimes that the common sense in one domain can be like a totally new thing in another domain. And I think especially in the field of environment engineering, we do a lot of bio-remitigation or argumentations. In that context, we study the specific microbiome in different environments, for example, in soil or even in contaminated lake. Those microbiome tends to have the ability to degrade complex toxic substance presented in the environment that is very difficult to get rid of using a traditional way. So that's why we are actively research on how to use these bugs to help us resolve these environmental issues. So when you say bioengineering, are you looking at engineering the bacteria themselves? That would be the bottom-up approach. In environmental engineering, we tend to do a top-to-bottom approach because realistically speaking, releasing an engineered strain into a vast environment, they tend to do very little. So instead, we try to control the environment to foster a better survival niche so that we can nourish them into one day that I hope they will give some return to us. Yeah, I like that word. So can you give us a very quick example of a specific process? Closest one, I work with the methanogens, which is frequently found in wastewater treatment plant or even in our gut. That can turn simple organic matters into methane which is a biogas that we can use it for combustion and method for energy storage and consumption. And another example would be geobacter that people have been using for decontamination, especially in nuclear plant, to remove their substance that's going to last for decades. But then we're trying to do it in years. Wow. I feel like we should say thank you to the bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, Leo, tell us about your research and how you got involved with the microbiome network of Imperial. So my lab focuses mostly on antibiotic resistance. The more we prescribe antibiotics to treat infections, the more resistant the bacteria become to these antibiotics. And so in the future, if we don't tackle this problem, then we're going to get back to a time where we didn't have antibiotics, right? And you could die from a simple cut. I think it's quite easy for us to say bacteria gain antibiotic resistance. But, you know, what does that really mean? And obviously, we're a DNA podcast. So one of our favorite topics is DNA. So I want to bring it back to the idea that gaining these different traits, it's all down to random changes in the DNA, random mutations. And one day you're going to get a bacteria that gets a random change, which wow, makes it resistant to antibiotic like bacteria. So it's not necessarily the case that it's always that bacteria gain antibiotic resistance through random mutations, right? But oftentimes different bacteria will trade genes. So a gene is just like a bit of DNA that defines how to make a protein and that a protein has certain functions. And one of these functions could be to break down the antibiotic. And Oftentimes we find that the genes for antibiotic resistance have existed long before we actually started prescribing antibiotics. Yeah, and most of the antibiotics come from fungi that also existed before we started. Like antibiotics are substances there for millions of years before we started prescribing them for health conditions. Anyway, but that gene transfer, is that what we call horizontal yeah. gene transfer? Ah. So I have a question for you, Leo, which is 
How do you identify what types of microbes exist and where? Well, the classical approach would be to take a sample, for example, from your gut, or you can use some fecal sample, and then to isolate the bacterium you're interested in and then grow it in a Petri dish until you've got loads and loads of the bacterium and then get the DNA of that one bacterium. But that doesn't really work for microbial communities because you're interested in more than one bacterium. And many of the bacteria that are in our guts, you can't actually grow in the lab. So what we use instead is metagenomics. It's a technique that gives you short bits of DNA from all the different organisms. It could be bacteria, it could be viruses, it could be human DNA that's in there as well. And then you can try to identify different bacterial species. You could have one bacterium of a species, say for example E. coli, that lives in your gut and it's happy and you're healthy and it helps you out and it's just like a normal friendly member of your bacterial community, right? But then you can have another version of E. coli that actually makes you sick. And these two different variants of the same species we call strains. So what I'm actually working on is not to try to identify bacterial species, which in itself is a problem, but to go even further into it and say, okay, which different strains are in the sample? I think that's a really good point, because part of the reason why our microbiome is beneficial is because some of them outcompete the bad microbes. So they are competing for resources and adhering to, for example, the wall of the gut. So they're preventing other bacteria from doing it. So... Theo, you mentioned earlier on about probiotics and prebiotics, and obviously probiotics is a multi-billion dollar industry, and uh, you know the jury's out on that one. But the opinion of a lot of the experts is that probiotics will be useful in specific circumstances. So what's your opinion on that? And also, what's the prebiotic? Probiotics simply mean that, so in scientific community, we have identified several strains of bacteria to be beneficial to your gut health. For example, the lactobacillus. You can find it in kimchi, you can find it in cheese. And prebiotic would be some substance that the bacteria or the microbes can consume to proliferate on. Usually, it won't be too beneficial to people who already have a normal gut health to take in prebiotic or probiotic. But in some circumstances, they might need some intervention so that it can have a little boost in their gut health and a quicker adoption to the local environment. Yeah, and just to jump in on that, it's actually quite interesting that you're saying if you want to change your gut microbiome and to, to bring it back to health and maybe also to antibiotic resistance. So the FDA just approved the second ever microbiome treatment where you actually give a cocktail of bacterial species as a treatment. And they do that because if you take an antibiotic, right, that doesn't necessarily only kill the bacterium that infected you. But it kills a bunch of other bacteria as well. So what essentially happens is you get a shift in your microbiome, the dysbiosis, we call it. And you want to get that back to normal as quickly as possible, because as long as your microbiome isn't such a dysbiosis, you are more susceptible for reinfection. And this treatment, as far as I'm aware, reduces the time it takes your microbiome to get back to the normal state. After this conversation, I feel quite attached to my microbiome. I mean, obviously I am, but I think we've got to take that attitude of, you know, you're not just feeding yourself, you're feeding your entire community and taking care of them and, yeah, making sure you're creating a good environment for them to live in. Yeah, you're nourishing them. Nourishing them, yeah. (laughs) We've got to talk about fecal transplants. Yes, I'm afraid. Uh, Well, I'm not actually that afraid. I know it might seem old to some people. I'm not going to lie. It seemed old to me when I first heard about it. 
but it's becoming a very hot subject in medical research, I would say. Yeah, so fecal transplants, which are now trying to be rebranded as gut microbiome transplants, but it is fecal matter, just putting it out there, has been approved for treatment of uh, one condition. Um, I know that happens in the UK when a specific bacteria causes really severe diarrhea. So treatment with these microbiome transplants are actually possibly curative and, and very important treatment options. So we shouldn't be scared of them. And nowadays there are actually capsules which you can take. Yeah, I have another question. From a newborn baby, how does that baby get a microbiome? Well, funny thing is I worked on breast milk research before on how will those products influence your gut microbiome. But aside from that, there were a hypothesis that the newborn baby will get their microbiome from their mother. So whether you are getting C-section or like you see a natural birth, that will alter the initial microbiome condition of the baby. So I think it's important to make the point that there's no reason to necessarily say that C-sections are worse than natural births or that formula is worse than breast milk. And of course, there are lots of reasons why you'd have to go for one or the other. And so everyone should feel comfortable with the choices that they make. But the more we understand about it, then the more that we have the opportunities to develop safe interventions to perhaps give those babies head starts and to better understand the microbiome. So there has been some research recently where babies born by a C-section were then given swabs of the mother's vaginal fluid was actually linked with some differences in development. So this is just a very interesting and active ongoing area of research. Yeah, I must add is still a very new topic. Did you know that they found antibiotic resistant genes in clouds? Oh, we haven't mentioned clouds. Yeah, bacteria in clouds. Clouds? Oh, okay. So obviously we live in a microbiome world. They're everywhere. So bacteria and, uh, well, maybe other microbes, but bacteria for sure exist in clouds and they're in a way, particulates, and they seed where the water droplets form. Oh, okay. Of course, once we do all this research and we find out what's going on, then the question is, can we intervene? So can we seed the clouds with bacteria and different particulates and change the weather? And that is where we're going into science fiction. Quite an interesting topic. Maybe that's a potential collaboration. Yeah, DNA in clouds. DNA in clouds, yeah. <laughs> so that was a very nice and productive chat. We definitely learned a lot more than our knowledge on just human DNA. Leo and Theo, thanks for coming today and thanks for chatting with us. Yes, and I'm going to go away and nurture my bacteria now. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So that's a wrap on our bonus episode, DNA and Bugs. It was really great to have the opportunity to speak to researchers from Imperial College's Microbiome Network. You can follow them and get updates on their Twitter and the handle is at Bugs Imperial. Yeah, and don't forget to tweet us your thoughts or if you like this bonus episode, let us know what other areas you would like us to cover. You can find us with the Twitter handle at DNA and Pod with and spelled A and D in a capital P for pod. As always, thank you to the Genetic Society for supporting this podcast. And we'll be back with our next episode, DNA and Drugs. DNA and Bugs? DNA and Drugs? <laughs> right. Wait, is it Bugs or Bugs? Ah, Bugs. Bugs. DNA and Bugs. This is one of the topics our research team is pushing for, so maybe we should talk later. <laughs> oh, DNA unfacilitated a collaboration. <laughs> That's great. We should be on the author list of any potential papers. Right, yeah. Yes, please. Yeah. DNA and podcast as an author. Yeah.